0: Here in Deuteronomy 22, we've got uh, various laws that would appear to be rather randomly put together, and it may be that this is a kind of uh, just a, a section where various laws are just stuck together, um, but I do perceive a, a kind of a theme that runs through these laws that we have put together here in chapter 22, and the, the theme that's common to many of them is that of sins of ignorance, that... don't think that by uh, omitting to do something and claiming that that was ignorance, that therefore that's okay. And I think that uh, that really is quite relevant to to us, because I think a lot of the, the sin that we commit in our generation is not so much of commission, whereby with a sort of a steel will you say, well, I know this is wrong, but I shall do it, uh, but rather sin of omission, where we know we should do something, but we do not do it. But because you haven't actually committed anything wrong, you're therefore justified as sort of okay. So he says in verse 1, If you find your brother's ox or his sheep that's gone astray, uh, and hide yourself from them, no, you must surely bring them to your brother. And again in, in verse uh, uh, 4, You mustn't see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down and hide yourself from them. The Hebrew really means to hide the eyes. And I think this penetrates psychologically to the very core of our inaction and our frequent sins of omission. We pretend we didn't see. It's as if there's two parts in our mind. One sees all this and the other half says, no, you didn't Uh, hide your eyes. I didn't see. And this is, I'm sure, what the, the priest and the Levite did when they saw the, the injured man on the road. And that other side of us, which says, no, I didn't see, that is what the Bible would call the devil. That, that is the, this voice within us, which is the, the whole problem. Now, as I say, this is our issue, I think. For many of us, it's not that we are hardcore sinners in terms of actually going out and committing stuff, but rather of seeing human need and situations and shutting our eyes. Half of our head telling the other half, you didn't see that, when in fact we did. And that is where these ancient laws that we have here are not just droning on, are not just a, a set of principles for an Iron Age tribe in a wilderness to, to live by, but this is the law of God, and you can see how the principle of it cuts right through to us in our generation, to pretend we didn't see, to de- deceive ourselves that I didn't notice. Now, it's connected, of course, to the idea of sins of ignorance, that, that there's legislation in the law of Moses that if you do something wrong in ignorance you still, when you understand that what you've done, you've still got to offer a sacrifice for it. That ignorance in that sense is no excuse. Even if you see, but you kid yourself that you're ignorant, all the same, it's no excuse. And looking through the word ignorance, later on in the New Testament, ignorance in the New Testament is actually listed as a sin. It is a sin to be ignorant. You may say, well, how could it be if I didn't know? Well, I think that's because, to some extent, we don't know because we don't want to know. And that is where the the failure is. Um, To be ignorant is, in that sense, a a choice uh, that we make. Now, this idea of hiding the eyes. Let's just uh, look at a couple of other verses in the Bible where that word is used. The word that's translated here uh, in verse 1, to hide yourself from the, uh, the lost ass, uh, or ox, uh, verse 4, to hide yourself from your brother's donkey or ox that's fallen down by the way. Okay, uh, Proverbs 28, verse 27, He that gives to the poor shall not lack, but he that hides his eyes shall have many a curse. The implication is that you hide your eyes um, because you fear that you shall lack if you give. He that gives to the poor shall not lack but he that hides his eyes shall have many a curse so then the implication is that we don't give to the poor we don't respond to seeing the brother's donkey or ox fallen down by the way because we fear that we shall lack that I shall lack my total wealth not only financially but in whatever uh, form shall be diminished if I help and, of course, this is not the, the spirit of the, uh, of the New Testament, that we are to give uh, and to really believe that the seed of the righteous shall not beg for bread, that we shall be um, preserved from absolute poverty. Of course, our total wealth in whatever form may diminish, but uh, that is, it seems to me, the, the spirit of Christianity that we are to give, as the Lord gave all for us. There's another time the word occurs, and it's in Isaiah 58, verse 7, You shall deal your bread to the hungry, hide not your eyes. Again, it's as if the hiding of the eyes is connected with not being generous to human need. It's kidding ourselves, I did not see. Now, I said that this theme of sins of omission is continued throughout this chapter. You have it in verse 8. When you build a new house, you must make a battlement for your roof, so that you don't bring blood on your house if anyone falls from there. You might think, well, okay, yeah, well, I forgot to build the, uh, the, the railing around the top of my new house. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't go and commit adultery. I didn't go and uh, steal anything today yeah well, okay, so I forgot to build the, uh, the the railing. well, yeah, okay, well, I just forgot um the The point is that that is pretty serious, that you are bringing blood on your house. Then later on, in this chapter, starting from verse thirteen, you've got commands as I see it about about rape, and the woman who did not cry out when she was raped in the city was punished with the same punishment as the rapist. Now, one of the themes of the Law of Moses is that that looking at some of this legislation, some of it seems absolutely over the top, some of it seems quite unreasonable. And whenever we feel that one of God's laws, as we have here in the Law of Moses, is somehow kind of unreasonable, uh, unreasonably heavy-handed, it might seem, I think it's flagging something. It's a flashing light that's making a point so the girl who's raped in the city and she doesn't cry out is punished with the same punishment uh, of death as the uh, as the rapist you may think that that's just uh, that's not so i mean there were after all within the law of moses uh, plenty of uh, examples of god recognizing degrees of sin for example, if you committed one sin, you had to offer a fairly small sacrifice or simply wash and be unclean until the evening. But if you did something a bit bigger, well, there was a bigger sacrifice to pay. So it's not as if God is unaware of levels of sin and levels of responsibility. And yet here, the, the woman who's raped in a city and does not cry out is punished just like the rapist. In other words, she omitted to do that. Now, of course, why did she not cry out? That Hebrew word translated to cry out doesn't literally, well, it, it does mean to shriek or to cry out. Uh, but it doesn't just mean that. It is also used about calling an assembly. As if, if and in fact, that is, it seems, it's, uh, its sense of calling an assembly. She doesn't. Take legal consequence against the guy. And why doesn't she do that? Well, you can imagine. If you breathe a word about this, this, that, and the other is going to happen to you and your family. So she gave in to blackmail and to to pressure. And you might say, yeah, well, that's understandable. Surely that is a different level of crime than the actual rapist. But not so in terms of its punishment. God may ultimately consider that that is a different level of judgment. Uh, in the the last day, but the point is here, it was the same punishment, and I think that is to highlight a point, that omission, saying nothing because you fear consequence, that that is as bad as the actual act that is being done against somebody. Now again, these ancient principles, which might appear to just be relevant to an Iron Age tribe stuck out on the Sinai scrubland. Suddenly become relevant to us because to not say anything, this is a, a frequent failure that we all have committed at times. And I think the principle that you take from this is that to not say something is as bad as doing it. Now, making all this relevant to, to us, we live uh, all of us to some degree in community, in spiritual community. And when you see something that's going on where somebody is being abused and you say nothing, and I'm not talking necessarily about sex, uh, sexual abuse, I'm talking about abuse in any form, and, and you say nothing because you fear the personal consequence for you or your family, then that is as if you have done it. Now this frequently arises when powerful members of the ecclesia, of the community of God, uh, choose to abuse another person and I am not talking as soon as you use the word abuse these days everyone thinks you're talking about sexual abuse well I'm not using the word in that sense at all uh, typically it happens that somebody starts a, a, uh, a vendetta against somebody and they start slandering them and yes eventually they get that person disfellowshipped and everybody else sort of quietly mutters and says yeah I don't agree with that uh, but nobody stands up and I think the the principle is that actually you're not crying out you're not shrieking out you're not calling the assembly is as bad as actually doing it as the actual act and this as i say is a a major a major consequence and a major uh, lesson for us a major principle that actually can affect your life okay verse 7 uh, for six and seven, if you happen to come across a bird's nest in the way, and there's a, a mother bird sitting on its young ones or its eggs, then you can take the, the eggs, but you must let the hen, uh, the mother, uh, go away. Just imagine, you come there to that nest. Why does the mother bird stay when the, the bird sees what you're going to do, that you're going to Take her, take the eggs. She chooses to stay on the eggs. If she starts to fly away, you don't have the right to take her. You can only take her. Uh, you can only take the eggs if she's sitting on them, and then let her go. She stays with them to the end because she's a loyal mother. And I think this little law is saying you are to respect that animal, and therefore let that bird go free. Now. This is, I think, the whole uh, rhythm of spiritual life. It's to see in all circumstance, to see, for example, in nature, in the way animals behave, or one animal uh, behaves, to see something there of principle, of God, and to respect it and notice it. In the daily round of life, this is how to do life in a spiritual way, to perceive the good, even in the natural creation, and learn from it. Then we come on to verse 8, about if you don't build a a railing around the the roof of your house and somebody falls from it, then their blood is on your house. Uh, Not only your physical house, but I guess house in the sense of your family. Now again we see here a huge principle. We are responsible for the fall of others, be it to their death or their spiritual fall, if we don't take adequate care of them. Now, if we were to talk about nothing else apart from that verse, you see there a huge principle, which alone can drive your entire life's work, that the responsibility for the fall of others is upon us, and we therefore are to do all we can so that they don't fall. And this really radically affects human behavior. It's one thing to say, well, it's okay in my conscience, so it may be. But what if that leads another person to fall? Then their blood is upon you. This is the whole uh, point of Paul's teaching there in Corinthians about eating um, meat that's been offered to idols. And he's saying that, really, we do not live or die unto ourselves. But sensitivity to the possible effect of our actions and our life decisions upon others must be considered. This especially is true when it comes to to decisions about fellowship and things like that. It's no good saying, yeah, well, that was the majority view. Um, That's just a Western democratic kind of excuse this is the problem with democracy that it it shifts responsibility for personal action and personal behavior off the individual and it's blamed upon this uh, invisible entity called the majority but actually no we each stand as individuals before God Almighty and we cannot shift that blame and democracy as I have uh, commented elsewhere is not a biblical idea it's become a dogma in the West that sort of democracy is next to godliness, and it's not at all. <clears throat> it's it's not so. It's not a method of rulership that God uh, particularly used in biblical times. It's not a principle that is supported in the Bible, and in fact, even in in human terms, it's only a philosophy that has really uh, taken root in the last couple of hundred years in in the West. And the West is in free fall now, and Sooner or later that will go, if the Lord doesn't come back. Uh, and non-democratic states uh, and empires and worldviews are clearly set to, to take over in this world. Now, he goes on then to talk about not sowing, verse 9, two kinds of seed uh, in your vineyard, uh, etc. Not playing with an ox and a donkey together. Not wearing clothes made of, uh, of mixed materials, wool and linen together. What exactly is the point of all this? I, I hesitate to say it, but I, I think that the point is that there's nothing unclean in itself. There's nothing wrong with this in itself. This was simply a practical method to teach Israel in daily life the principle of separation. The principle that different things are to be used specifically in the way that, uh, that God has intended. And that principle of separation runs through spiritual life. The idea of holiness, the Hebrew idea of holiness, is of separation from and also separation unto something else. So then we who are separated unto the things of God and the things of the Lord Jesus and the things of his kingdom, quite naturally that makes you separate from all the razzmatazz and nonsense that there is in this world. Then we go on then to, to these laws about, about rape, really, um, and uh, marital issues, starting in verse 13. Moses envisages the situation whereby uh, a man and woman get married, and then afterwards the man says that this girl was not a, a virgin, and he has to bring the cloth, uh, presumably where her hymen was broken the uh, first night they slept together uh, and bring that before the elders of the city and if uh, he uh, has got that then um, she, uh, she is killed uh, sorry uh, if um, she does not have the, uh, the tokens of virginity then uh, she is to be killed uh, but If, in fact, he's just said this against her, and, as it says, um, he brings up a bad name upon her, and he accuses her, verse 17, of, of shameful things, and if it turns out that she is innocent... Verse 19, They shall fine him one hundred shekels of silver, and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought up an evil name on a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. Now, that sounds pretty, uh, pretty heavy again, because later on in the chapter, You read that in verse 28 and 29, If a man finds a woman who is a virgin, and lays hold on her, and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her must give to the woman's father fifty shekels of silver, and she should be his wife, because he has humbled her. He may not put her away all his days. So, the fine for raping uh, a girl who was a virgin was fifty shekels of silver. But this guy who has slandered his wife has got to pay double that. He's got to pay 100 shekels of silver and also be beaten, verse 18, chastised, whipped. That would appear to be out of order. That A a fellow who who rapes a a woman um, has got to pay 50 uh, 50 shekels of silver. Uh, But the guy who slanders his wife has got to pay a hundred shekels of silver and be whipped I think again the apparent uh, sort of discontinuity there the apparent out of order uh, judgment upon him is to to flag something and it's a signpost how God hates slander how he really hates and despises this kind of thing that that is actually far worse than raping a virgin to slander your wife. And you notice also that the hundred shekels of silver is to be paid to her father. I think that that is, again, an indication that God recognises that slander not only hurts the individual who is slandered, but what about the family? What about her mum and dad? They're also hurt without... Yeah, you well, we can't put in words how hurt parents are when their kids are slandered. And this is what goes on, unfortunately, within our own community and in many Christian communities big time. That the close-knit nature of the community leads to slander. It, it leads to gossip being spread. And everyone's looking over the shoulder at the other person and... It, I'm afraid it breeds this kind of possibility of pulling someone else down. And yet it's pretty clear here, if you do that, it is even worse than you have raped a virgin. And whilst I welcome, I strongly welcome, the growing uh, trend which there is for some kind of glassnost, some kind of openness uh, in recognising sexual failure in organisations, etc., commissions into abuse, etc., there should, in my opinion, also be <clears throat> serious, very serious consequence for those who are found guilty of slander. Very serious consequence. In fact, stronger, according to the principles you got here, stronger than the consequence for the person who actually commits the actual abuse. And unfortunately, if that is not um, if that is not upheld, then you find that a community slips into endless litigation and a spirit of endless slander, gossip, and backbiting, because there is no consequence for slander. Here, under the law of Moses, God gave a very, very strong consequence for slander. You notice that it says, "And he may not divorce her." Well, that opens up the whole issue of what the Law of Moses really taught about divorce. Because it would appear that the only reason for divorce was unfaithfulness, and if you, say so your wife or your husband, committed unfaithfulness, then they had to die. So, therefore, the whole issue of divorcing a person because they have been sexually unfaithful becomes a little bit uh, self-contradictory because if they were sexually unfaithful then they had to die so I think we can only conclude that the law of Moses was capable of different interpretations or shall we say different applications in this whole area the fact that it says here he may not divorce her would imply that People did, men did divorce their wives for reasons other than adultery. And here in this case it said that he cannot do that. So when we put together the teaching of the law of Moses on on the whole issue of sexual unfaithfulness, divorce, etc., you do not get a clear picture. And I think those who wish to dream up very clear-cut Uh, positions are on uh, things like divorce and remarriage etc would be wise to just think about that that god is not like that that even within the law of moses the law of moses was not as some seem to imagine it all black and white uh, legislating for every single possible case actually within that law within the law itself there are all kinds of different permutations and different possibilities, whereby one law, that is, you can only divorce if your partner commits adultery, uh, is, in fact, it, it seems not rigidly enforced. And, of course, as we know from the example of Hosea, who was also living under the law and was even representing God in his relationship with his wife, he could have had her burnt because she was a prostitute. But what does he do? He forgives her, and he keeps on forgiving her. So that was another option uh, when it comes to to marital unfaithfulness. Then there was the whole thing in Numbers 5, that there's the trial of jealousy. They could also operate that, that if she was guilty of sexual unfaithfulness, then she had to um, be be barren, etc., and under the curse, but she still lived. So putting it all together, you do not get a clear picture. And so when we encounter human failure, I don't think that it's wise to say, yep, look, the Bible says this, that, and the other about this case. Yes, the Bible does say that, but the Bible also says other things relating to a more tolerant uh, situation uh, and uh, a desire to save uh, those who have failed. And, of course, overarching all this, there is the whole issue of, of forgiveness, so then, this is how God deals with us. Although the uh, specific details of God's law, as we've read it here, have of course been changed in the, in the death of the Lord Jesus, the law has in that sense been abrogated. The principles of this God who is so sensitive to slander, this God who really sees sins of omission as very, very serious This God who perceives how his children have a tendency to hide their eyes from human need. That God is the same today. And, of course, God did not hide his eyes from what was going on down here on this tiny little planet. He has not hidden his eyes from you, nor from me. He has not hidden his eyes from our need. And he has responded to that in the gift to us of his Son and in the death of the Lord Jesus Our response to that is to not hide our eyes from human need and to get out there and to get our hands dirty. And that means normally spending a lot of time um, involved in meeting, as far as we can, human need.